friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil White, joined as always by my brother David. And David, have you told two people about this podcast? I have, yes. So here's the crazy thing, David. If I tell two people and you tell two people and those four people each tell two more people and then they tell two more people, by the end of the month, the whole world will be listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? It's like a Ponzi scheme, except nobody goes to jail. It's really great. So if everyone can just tell two more people, soon the whole world will be listening. David, are you ready to talk some history? I think I am, Neil. All right, let's do a little history and I'll ask you the question I ask you every time we do the podcast. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's probably August 16th, 1650. And Oliver Cromwell and Roger Boyle are sitting down to a somewhat awkward dinner. Well, I think we've all been to a few awkward dinners and maybe have a couple coming up uh, at the end of this month. Why is their dinner so awkward, David? Well, the key thing here is who these two people are. So we've got Oliver Cromwell. He's very famous, of course. Sure. For those of us who don't spend all of our time reading history books, maybe give us a quick refresher. All right. So... Oliver Cromwell, the famous general of the English Civil Wars, fought for the parliamentary side, supporting democracy, fought against the royalists, supporting the king. One was the chief mover of the trial of King Charles I, presided over the execution of King Charles I, and then became Lord Protector of England, as well as the leading general in the Commonwealth of England's army. And on a more sort of political level, we could talk about many of the famous things he did. For example, he banned Christmas. And on a level a bit more relevant to this awkward dinner party, he also banned plays and the theater well i guess anyone who beheads a king is going to be pretty famous so yes oliver cromwell quite famous why did he ban christmas david and why did he ban plays in the theater both of these are tied to oliver cromwell's political power base he's a puritan himself christian who interprets his religion in a very specific very strict manner they weren't very fond of how people celebrated Christmas. They viewed it as idolatrous and too focused on some elements of Christianity over others. And by banning it, he helped to reinforce his political power base because it was made up of people like him who disapproved. So driving it off the streets helped to make them feel sort of the opposite of nowadays where you have people who want to see more Christmas in public spaces. This was about having less Christmas in public spaces. Okay, so it's a religious move nominally, but really it's about the politics and about who supports him. 
So there's not going to be any Christmas in England in 1650 if Oliver Cromwell has his way. But it's August and he's sitting down to dinner. Who's he at dinner with, David? So Roger Boyle. This is a very interesting guy in his own right, not as well-known as Cromwell. So the first reason why this dinner is so awkward is because Roger Boyle is an ex-royalist general. During the English Civil War, he fought on the royalist side as a general. So he was against Oliver Cromwell. He was against Oliver Cromwell, yes. Did they actually fight against each other in in battles? No, and that brings us to the second point. Roger Boyle is from Ireland. He's descended from English lords who had seized uh, some of Ireland, but he lived in Ireland for most of his life. And when he was a royalist general, he was a royalist general in Ireland while Cromwell was still fighting in England. So they never crossed paths, but definitely still some tension from having been on opposite sides of the war. Yes, certainly that would make for awkward dinner conversation. Why do these two former enemies, former generals who fought against each other, find themselves eating dinner together? Well, that's a bit of a story, Neil. So, Roger Boyle, I've got to keep on saying the first name. I may go switch over. I might start calling him Lord Broghill, which is his title of nobility, simply because his younger brother, Robert Boyle, is actually more famous today. That's Robert Boyle, the chemist who codified Boyle's Law, if you're down with chemistry. All the chemistry fans listening to this history podcast, that's a little shout out to you. Exactly. But Roger Boyle, at the end of the first English Civil War, after King Charles I had been executed, got involved in a plot to get into communication with Charles II, Charles I's son and heir, who was then living in France, to try and restore him to the English throne. And he was actually heading through England to try and get in contact with certain people who were supposed to help with this plot. And he was in London, and he got an unexpected visit from the senior representatives of Oliver Cromwell's government. So he's in London on his way to find the exiled heir to the throne to overthrow the government, and the government is reaching out to him. And obviously, he's surprised and kind of nervous, and he doesn't get become less nervous when these senior government officials who've just reached out to him tell him that they know he's plotting treason, and they just want to have a talk with him about his alternatives. Yeah, I'd be pretty surprised too, David. Usually when you're plotting treason and the government knows you're plotting treason, they want to do a lot more than just chat with you. So he goes in to a personal meeting with Oliver Cromwell, who tells him that he, Oliver Cromwell, is planning to invade Ireland to reconquer it in the name of England, and that he wants Lord Broghill to help him. He's asking his former enemy to help him invade Ireland. 
What is Roger Boyle's reaction? Does he want to invade Ireland on behalf of England? Well, this is one of those things that I found somewhat surprising, but yes, yes, he does. You see, Ireland in this time period, now that the English have been distracted by their civil war and are no longer running the place, sort of by default has come under the control of the local Irish, which you would sort of suspect. And they're Catholic. Um, There's a very strong Catholic tradition in Ireland to this day. And Lord Broghill views himself as an English nobleman, even though he's lived in Ireland all his life. And he is very fervently Protestant, and he really hates Catholics. He just absolutely hates Catholics. And so does Cromwell. And Cromwell's sort of offer is, join me, and together we can both crush these Catholics. Well, that's one reason to go to war, I suppose. Uh, Maybe not the best reason, but it is a reason. So now these two enemies are united by their hatred of Catholics and are looking to invade Ireland? And they do. They get together and they invade Ireland. And they're very successful from a military sense. This is the same invasion which infamously sees the town of Drogheda sacked and a major massacre there. But from a tactical military perspective rather than a humanitarian one, with Lord Broghill carefully selecting certain garrisons that are loyal to him and having them switch sides and join the Cromwellian forces, they're able to quickly overrun the majority of the island and then crush the remaining outposts of resistance in a series of sieges over a relatively short period of time. So having an Irish general on his side works out the way Oliver Cromwell had planned it. Exactly. But things remain sort of awkward between them. Like, they're successful as a team, but Cromwell doesn't totally trust Lord Broghill on his own. There's a couple of incidents where, for example, Cromwell just makes sure that a few of his more loyal officers are always present when Lord Broghill is doing some of his meetings with the garrisons that are loyal to him personally, just because there's not there's not really that trust there between the two of them. Which I can kind of understand since they were just fighting a war against each other. And there's also little personal differences too. I mentioned that Oliver Cromwell banned theater band putting on plays Lord Broghill is a playwright he writes plays in his spare time um, when he's not being a general it's sort of personality wise they're two very different people and they don't really get along but in 1650 the Irish campaign is winding down and they're all about to go home but before they do they're gonna have dinner and it happens to be together. And this is our awkward dinner that probably happened on August 16th, 1650. Exactly. So they're sort of casting around for topics of conversation as you do when you end up awkwardly at dinner with somebody you have to work with but don't really get along with. We've all been there. Yeah. 
And then from the description in his memoirs, just out of the blue, Lord Broghill decides, you know what? I'm just going to ask the big question. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to ask Oliver Cromwell, why did you kill the king? Awkward. So Cromwell responds, and at first it's sort of what you'd expect, right? They're having this conversation, and Cromwell's bringing up words about, you know, causing a civil war and being a tyrant and sort of the reasons that are very publicly the reasons why they executed Charles I. So Lord Broghill says, maybe I should be a little bit more specific. Earlier, you were trying to cut a deal with the king even after he became your prisoner. There was a lot of reports that you were trying to come to a peaceful agreement where he would still have some role governing the country. And then you decided to execute him. What changed? What was the point where you were like, no, we can't do a deal with this guy? Is that what had happened, David? That is fairly accurate. The political maneuverings around the end of the First English Civil War and what Charles I's ultimate fate would be were very complex. Some people favored exiling him. Some people wanted to bring him into government in some way, as uh, Lord Broghill's alluded to here. And obviously... There is a faction that wants to execute him, and they're going to ultimately succeed. And there's multiple sort of different factions are ahead at different times. But Oliver Cromwell sort of listens to the question and gets very specific in his answer. He says, for me and for Henry Ireton, the other general in command of the New Model Army, the largest army in England at the end of the First English Civil War, there was a moment. There was a moment when, before that, we were actually worried that supporters of the King and the Scots Parliament, who had their own thing going on at this point, but who were rumored to be interested in forming an alliance with the King, would rise up against us and start a new civil war, and we wanted to do a deal with the king to avoid that. And there was a moment when we realized we couldn't do a deal with the king. We couldn't do a deal, so we had to execute him. Wow, I imagine that would be quite the thing for Roger Boyle to hear. This is, you know, the drama of the end of the war right from the horse's mouth. It's very dramatic. And of course, the first thing you wonder is, what was that moment? What made Oliver Cromwell feel like that? So Oliver the Cromwell says, well, it's a bit of a story, but I'll tell it to you. So it starts off. Oliver Cromwell is trying to cut a deal with the king because he's worried specifically about the Scots. But he's not friendly with the king or anything he doesn't like the king he just wants to do a deal with him so he decides i'm gonna sneak a spy into the king's household so that i can get sort of a window into what the king is thinking during these negotiations which will give me a negotiating advantage i'll know 
what's going on and I can tailor what I ask for to what the king wants. Pretty smart. But then his spy comes back and says the king is already secretly negotiating with the Scots. He wants to do a deal with the Scots and he's only delaying you by pretending to negotiate so that he can cut a deal with the Scots instead and kill you. Wow. Imagine having your spy come back and tell you that the king is plotting to kill you. I can see why Oliver Cromwell decided that executing Charles I was probably the right decision. Well, the thing is, though, thing is, can you really trust a spy? Because he's a guy who's willing not just to be like a spy for his country or something, but a guy who's willing to just go and pretend to be friends with the king and then just report back what he was thinking. It's kind of hard to have full trust in somebody who's willing to do something like that. And this is, you know, a very dramatic accusation. So Oliver Cromwell says, it would be really great if there were some proof of that. Do you have any proof of that that I could get my hands on? Sure, it makes sense, I guess, to want evidence. So does the spy have some proof? So the spy says, I don't have any proof like in my hands that I can give you, but there's a secret courier. He goes back and forth between England and Scotland on legitimate business. He doesn't know that he's a courier. He thinks he's a legitimate businessman going back and forth. But he talks to one of the king's servants. The king's servant puts a letter into his saddle, sews it in. He goes up to Scotland. And then in Scotland, there's an agent who the king is in contact with who cuts open the saddle because he knows which guy it is, gets the letter out, sews it back up, puts, puts in a new letter, sews it back up, Sends it back and forth. That's how they communicate. That's some James Bond Q-level spy work there, sewing letters into saddles. So if you want proof, all you've got to do is catch this guy going back and forth, cut open his saddle, you can find the letter. And conveniently, I know the inn he likes to drink at when he's going up from London to Scotland, which he will be doing soon. It's the Blue Boar Inn in Holborn. Alright, so now Oliver Cromwell's men can catch this guy at the tavern and cut open his saddle. Is that what they do? So, Oliver Cromwell telling this story to Lord Broghill tells him, I was so upset by this that I didn't even stop to think. I just grabbed Henry Ireton, also a general, and one other guy who happened to be around, just an ordinary guy, and the three of us just rode straight to the inn because I wanted to see this for myself. So the generals went themselves, Oliver Cromwell went himself to cut open this unwitting courier's saddle. And what does he tell Roger Boyle? How did it turn out? So they arrive at the Blue Boar Inn. They're both wearing sort of ordinary army uniforms officer kind of quality but they don't have 
insignia or anything. They don't have anything that says that they're generals. And this isn't like the modern time when we have pictures and video and people can recognize famous people they've never met. You get far enough away to a little inn like this, Oliver Cromwell and Henry Ireton aren't drawing attention. They're just officers in the new model army. Right, things were a little different before TMZ. Exactly. So they go in, and they order some cans of beer. I should note that that was just a slang term for mugs of beer. They hadn't actually invented cans at that point, but they did use the term. Interesting little fact. But they order some cans of beer, and they sort of sit there and wait. And the guy who's supposed to be the courier rides in, and he orders a beer too. And they watch him, and when he's going out, they get up, walk up behind him, pull their swords, and say, Hey, buddy, we're officers in the new model army, and we've got orders to search you. And he says... I'm a legitimate, honest businessman. Feel free to search me. You know, you want to pat me down and look for letters or whatever, that's go nuts. I'm just an ordinary guy. And they say, that's great. And our friend here, the third guy, is going to do that. And, you know, we're just going to go back and have another beer because this is just a boring mission and we're just ordinary officers who aren't super enthusiastic about what's going on. But really, it's Oliver Cromwell and the other top general in the army. And they're quite concerned about this because they think their lives are at stake. And the guy gets led away to be searched and he's okay with it. And the third guy doesn't actually know what's going on, but this isn't a big deal for him. And immediately, once everybody's out of sight, the two generals turn around, grab the saddle. And of course first thing they start doing is cutting open the saddle to see if there's a letter in it. And, David? And there's a letter. They cut open the saddle, and there is a letter. Wow, so the spy's story was true. So they read the letter. It's incriminating. Now they don't trust the king. So they stop seriously trying to do a deal with him. And instead, they are stringing along the king... Because now that they know he's doing a deal with the Scots, they plan an ambush for the Scottish army, which works. They beat the Scottish army, and then they have a trial and execute King Charles I. The guy who does it is so nervous about being recognized that he wears a fake beard and a wig so that no one will know who he was ever. We're still pretty sure we know who executed Charles I, but I do like the fact that he was wearing a fake beard when he did it. And history goes back on its course, driven by an event that we would never have heard about if it hadn't been for an awkward dinner party and a guy who just said, you know what, I'm just going to ask the awkward question up front and see what he says. Wow, and so that's how we find out why Charles I met his unfortunate end. Thanks for telling us this story, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. Well, we do have a quiz for the end of this episode, as we usually do. Of course, if you want more Oh Brother, When Art Thou, you can check out our website, obrother.ca, or you can listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts, on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Our handle is at When Art Thou. 
or send us an email, thou at outlook.com. All right, David, for our quiz today, uh, we're going to do an on this day. And the day that we're going to look at is December 5th because that just so happens to be your birthday. It's a good day, yes, but only one truly important thing has happened on December 5th in history. So let's see what else you can dig out. Exactly. All right. So how it works is I'm going to ask you a year and an event and you tell me if it happened on December 5th or not. So our first event is from 1955. E.D. Nixon and Rosa Parks lead the Montgomery bus boycott. Did it happen on December 5th? Well, that sounds like the sort of event that would happen over a perhaps an extended period, more than just one day, but I would say that quite possibly it was occurring on December 5th, yes? You're right. It is true. This was the start of the Montgomery bus boycott on December 5th. They did, as you mentioned, continue to boycott until the court case came through. And this was actually the Monday after Rosa Parks was famously arrested for refusing to give up her seat. That's why they started the boycott. All right, David, our next one is actually kind of pertinent to these this podcast it goes back to 1605. Was it December 5th, 1605, that Guy Fox is arrested for the gunpowder plot? All right. Well, the gunpowder plot was in November. So the question is, did he remain at large for a full month before being arrested? 1605, police work wasn't as fast I'd certainly say that that's plausible. I'll say yes. No, it's actually false. It was November 5th. The He was arrested right away for the gunpowder plot. And, uh, of course, the famous rhyme, Remember, remember, the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. Pretty easy question for our English listeners. They probably have heard that rhyme before. All right, David, our next one is Canadian. 1875 was December 5th, 1875, the birth of Arthur Curry, the Canadian general. Huh. Arthur Curry, very famous Canadian general, but I do not know his birthday. Um, I'll guess no. That actually is true. December 5th, 1875 was the birth of Arthur Curry, who would go on during World War I. He became the first Canadian commander of the Canadian Corps. Our next one's a death, David. 1926. Was it December 5th, 1926, that Claude Monet, the Impressionist painter, passed away? Ah, well, I do not know much about art, and I certainly don't know when Claude Monet died, so I will guess no. This one is also true. Claude Monet died on December 5th, 1926, at the age of 86. You can still visit his garden to this day near Paris, France. One last question for you here, David, about December 5th, your birthday. And this one is in 1837. Was December 5th, 1837, the Battle of Montgomery's Tavern in the unsuccessful Upper Canada Rebellion? I feel like no. You are correct. It was December 6th, the Battle of Montgomery's Tavern, one day after December 5th, obviously. 
And uh, this kind of sets up the events of episode three of this podcast. So if you haven't listened to that yet, go back and listen to episode three. It's a great episode. There's pirates, there's rebellions, there's battles, there's a flaming boat. It's It's got everything you could want, really. So uh, that's episode three. Thanks for playing along, David. Always happy to, Neil. And thanks for listening. 